listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Wow, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to follow that. Um, Got me wanting to sign up for the women's conference. Man, if you're a college college woman in the room um, and you want to go to the IF gathering, this is the perks of when the college minister speaks, we can get you there for free. So you can simulcast that for free. Um, you can check our Instagram page or just ask me or one of our one of our college age girls can let you know how to get that free as a college student. Some of you signing up for classes right now, so you can do that. Um, I don't know what your last few months have looked like, or especially this last week, but we've been spending a lot of time inside. Um, let me reword that. We've been spending a lot of time watching Encanto. Um, have you guys seen it? You've seen the movie? Um, it's, it's great. It's a great movie. I have, uh, I've seen like most of it. I've heard all of it many times, um, including the songs, great soundtrack, cool little dance in the kitchen, kind of a soundtrack. Our, our son loves to yell out to the Google, you know, home thing in our kitchen. We don't talk about Bruno. And then it just starts playing the song. And, uh, so great, great movie about a family with, um, you know, there's like a magical house and a candle and I'm blurry on the details, but, um, you get it. It's a Disney movie. It's great. Uh, you're going to love it. Just go check it out. The next five snow days you have to do that. Um, but that song, the one that you just got out of your head that I'm going to talk about this morning, we don't talk about Bruno, um, reminds me of some of the ways that we treat the Bible. There are some things in the Bible that we treat like Bruno. And it's interesting in the movie, it's like all they talk about. Like they sing that they don't talk about him, but it's like the main point of the whole thing. Um, but they, uh, like there's, there's stuff in the Bibles. And if you're doing the year of Bible engagement with us, um, you've come across some pages in Leviticus or Exodus or Numbers, that kind of like nap through that, you know, like that really hard spot in there was a lot of stuff that we just like, I would rather this not be here. Like, let's not talk about this. Can we skip to the good part? Can we get to the place where, you know, Jesus is doing his thing and the disciples, can we get to a little more narrative? These laws and rules and so much blood, right? There's just blood everywhere. Okay. We've got to, but we've got to do it. Like, just like, like we don't talk about Bruno, we end up finding out like he's kind of the key to the whole thing. Spoilers, sorry. But, uh, but the blood is kind of important. It's like on every page. And maybe you've been going through and you're like, I'm going to skim through this part and the, the boils and the blood diseases and the cycles. And like, let's not, like, can we just skip over all of that stuff? And so this, this week, I kind of did a little bit of a um, theological rabbit hole dive on the internet. I wouldn't recommend this to just be like, why is there so much blood in the Bible? Type that into, ask your Google home. Why is there so much blood in the Bible? And I got all kinds of articles and some are from a very, you know, like curious academic perspective. And some of them are from like a very skeptical. Here's, here's one that I found a professor at UNC Greensboro. Um, he wrote, he wrote this, that I thought it was going to be here. I'm confused. Uh, I'll look, turn around. Um, I'm thinking, <laughs> there it is. I'm sorry. They told me I move around a lot and I'm now, okay, TV with legs. Um, I'm thinking about how religious people, so he's writing a book about the blood called The Persistence of the Blood. He's looking through like how religions deal with blood. How religious people, especially Christians, think about blood. How they use images of blood, symbols of blood, language of blood. To me, recently it's become strange why 
many Christians talk about blood so much. So it's just like, you know, he's, he's wrote this book. Like kind of, even other religions, he's like, there's just so much blood. We're going to do that. Some people don't approach it from such an um, academic standpoint, but a guy who identifies himself as a skeptic living in the Bible belt writes on pathos.com. He wrote this. You might think that, a mod- that, that centuries later, more modern civilized people would turn their noses up at this kind of thinking, but you'd be wrong. They sing about the blood. They talk about the blood covering them, making them clean. Then they sing about it again and again and again and again. So many songs about blood. And I started thinking, we we do sing a lot of songs about blood, right? I mean, I grew up in church and we sing nothing but the blood. We sing the blood will never lose its power. I'm from Texas County. So we sing, are you washed in the blood? Like there's blood everywhere. We've got to do something about this blood. We can't just ignore it. I remember watching Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ the first time. I was in Bible college, and I had to get permission from my dorm parents to go watch it because we weren't supposed to be watching rated R movies. And that was just one of the rules that we had. So we had to ask, hey, can we go watch the movie about Jesus? And they're like, yeah, you can go watch that. But we said at the end of that movie, as many of you probably did, and just it's the same question that everybody has to ask themselves when you encounter what Jesus did on the cross for you is what are we going to do with all of this blood? And I've come up with a funny answer and then a sermon. So I'll give you the funny answer first, right? Reading the Bible is kind of like being a parent. You're going to have to deal with some crap and some blood at some point, right? I know they just keep letting me, I said it in first service and nobody told me not to say it again. So I'm still up here. You're going to have to deal with it. And this morning, we're just going to deal with the blood, okay? I'll let Wayne deal with the other part. I grew up, I said I grew up in Texas County. I grew up deer hunting. Any deer hunters in the room? Nope. Okay. Um, And one thing you learn as a deer hunter, especially if you're like me, a really terrible shot, is how to trace blood trails. Um, and you learn like what, if you find blood on the ground, you're like, what do I do with this? You know, like, it's like, is this, is it really bright? Is it really old? Is it new? Is it bubbly? Is it, there's all kinds of things. Like just, you can figure it out. Does it have other things in it besides blood? That means you're a really bad shot. Um, but like, so you can kind of tell and then you kind of follow. And I realize this is one of those illustrations where half of the room is like, I knew I loved this church. And then the other half is like, but Bambi's dad. Um, it's okay. Um, here's the point. We have to trace this blood. We, we have to do something with all of the, we can't just skim over and go, you know, get, get to the good part where it's like, yeah, there was, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of blood. Every single week we're taking communion together and we're talking about Jesus' blood and his body and like all of that. The reason that the, the, the passion of the Christ was rated R because it was a bl- brutal and bloody scene. And we have to ask ourselves these questions. What are we going to do? We need to do something with this. We need to do some blood tracing. And the origins of blood can take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. At the very beginning, the first sin has occurred. Adam and Eve went their own way. They went against God's one and only rule. And God has to sacrifice one of his creations, the first animal sacrifice in all of scripture, he has to sacrifice one of his beloved created creatures so that he can make a covering for their shame. You notice they went from the fig leaves to animal skins that he made for them, the first blood sacrifice in all of scripture. And then we see um, that there's, you know, more bloodshed. Um, we see sacrifices on altars. We see, um, you know, that's the sacrifices are happening when Cain decides to kill Abel. But it's not until Exodus... It's not until Exodus that we see a system of dealing 
with sin through the sacrifice of shedding of blood. Now, now the most notable beginning to all of this, in this manner of sacrifices, is the Passover. Exodus chapters 11 and 12. If you grew up around church or, again, watching Disney movies, you might have a little bit of an idea of what happened at the Passover or what happened with the plagues. Um, God promises Moses that there would be a tenth plague. This is after the flies and the gnats and the hail and all the previous nine other plagues that had not changed Pharaoh's mind. And it had not convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but this was God's final plague. And he was going to show Pharaoh, who was seen as a god or considered himself to be God, God was going to show him who was the one true God. If you've got your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. Moses says this, as he was commanded by God, he says this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt, and the firstborn of every male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish throughout all of the land in Egypt, such as never, such as never was before and ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, neither people nor animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God is going to leave no question who is sovereign. God is going to leave no question who is more powerful in this display. I was reading some commentaries where where they started talking like God wanted it to be known that this was actually not even a competition. Pharaoh thought that he could go toe-to-toe with the one true God, and God was going to make it clear that he couldn't. Israel has a way out. This is going to happen. I mean, for all of the injustices that the Egyptians had carried out, their puny God had had, had walked them towards this sin. But the Israelites, they will be spared as long as they follow God's commands. This is a pattern we start to see through the Old Testament. You've seen it as you're reading Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that as the people of God follow God and they obey his commands, that his protection is on them. But when the people of God start to Waver, and they start to look at other clans and nations and tribes and want the things that they want, and they stop worshiping the one true God, and they idolize other gods that God's protection is dissipated from them, and it's removed. And so, we see that everything plays out the way that God said it. They were told to prepare a lamb and to eat it. To have this feast, it would, it would end up being their last meal as slaves. They would, they would eat it with their sandals on and their belts fastened because they weren't going to be staying in Egypt much longer. They were commanded to paint the doorpost, to take the blood from the lamb that they had sacrificed to eat, to, to, to paint it on the doorpost of their homes. And it would be a sign that the Israelites had obeyed God's commands. And so when the angel of the Lord came through Egypt, he would, key word, pass over, would pass over the houses of the Israelites. Because they were to be set free. And everything played out just as God had promised. Pharaoh's oldest son and all of the firstborn of Egypt and their livestock were dead by morning. And as Wayne mentioned a few weeks ago in our series, Questioning the Bible, we're going to talk about where where people just kind of stop here and they pause here and they go, wait a second. You're telling me that God just killed all of these innocent people? And the key word being innocent, I'll give you a little bit of pause there. Think about all the stuff that we have seen Pharaoh do. As he mentioned a few weeks ago, um, this is not God throwing a temper tantrum. 
This is not, this is not God going on some killing spree just because he can. This is an act of justice and retribution for the lives that Pharaoh has taken. This is an act of power in opposition to the power that Pharaoh thought that he had. And this is an act of compassion for God's chosen people who had been enslaved. Justice, power, compassion. We can look at this story and we can go, how unjust of God to just wipe out the firstborn of every. But if you've already, if you've been tracking with us on the history, this, is the, this may be the greatest act of justice in all of humankind. Because it's what Pharaoh has brought upon his people. God had, then God commanded in chapter 12, you're going to celebrate this every single year. Every year, you're going to celebrate the fact that you were delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. And for over 2,000 years, Jewish people have celebrated the Passover feast. It's coming up here in just a few months, our week of Easter. Um, and if you have Jewish friends, Orthodox or Messianic, they likely still celebrate the Passover. And, and I'm sure there are even some in this room who are far more qualified. As a matter of fact, down the hallway in our youth service right now, Lori Medlin is doing a full-on, um, a full-on Passover feast with, with the high school students. Um, a regular, like from what I understand, traditional Jewish Passover feast would take about four hours. So like, I guess you can come pick them up later. But, uh, I mean, she's got the bitter herbs. They've got the, the bread and all that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm not going to try to do that. They don't usually give me four hours. They don't usually give me an hour. So, um, but, I, but I did want I, I to focus on a specific part of this meal. I want to trace this idea of deliverance, but more specifically, deliverance by the blood of the Lamb. Delivered by the blood of the lamb. I want to focus on one aspect of the traditional Passover so we can trace this blood from that first nervous night waiting in Egypt. Will God keep his promises? Did we really do all of this for for, for no reason at all? All the way to 2022 and the freedom we have in the sacrifice of another lamb. The Passover feast is traditionally celebrated and marked by four cups of wine. These four cups were actually not commanded by God when we see there in, um, in Exodus chapter 12. But over the history of time, somewhere between uh, the first Passover meal and when Jesus um, was walking the earth, they had added this as a remembrance of the four promises that God had given Israel. The four cups, actually just, each person would just have one cup. And they would refill that cup four times and they would stand and they would recite these promises. Each of the cups represented something, a promise from God. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 is where these promises come from. See if you can catch them as we read through. Here's what God says Moses to Moses to tell the people. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and you, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so these four cups represent the four promises in that specific text. Here they are. Cup number one, I will bring you out. The cup of sanctification. Cup number two, I I will deliver you from slavery. The cup of deliverance. Cup number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched hand. The cup of redemption. And then finally four, I will take you to be my people. The cup of consummation has a couple different names. Consummation or finish or whatever. Each cup is filled with wine. 
probably some sort of raisin wine, probably less potent than the wine we drink. I know some of you were already like four cups of wine in four hours. Like I would be, yeah. So it's probably a little less potent, but here's the thing. What we could do is we could stop here and we could have this big theological debate about wine versus no wine and potency versus, you know, like how much alcohol, how much of that sort of stuff. We can do that. I was, I was re-watching a sermon. I remember Beth Moore gave the 2013 Passion Conference. It was, uh, I believe it was Sunday morning. And we had all just, I mean, long weekend of, of conference going. And we get there to Sunday morning and she had this spread set up on the um, on the stage, and she had done like a, a reenactment of the Passover, giving all of the significance and that sort of stuff. I'm not doing that much in depth, but she, she made a note to stop in her message and say, if you stop at this point, if you get hung up on this point, there are places for these debates. There are places for these conversations. We have commands from the New Testament. Do not get drunk on wine. We have all of these, but if you stop at, at, in the Passover feast and all you can get hung up on is like, well, that's too much wine. <laughs> or like, uh, we can't do that, or maybe it's not enough wine, or whatever, you know, whatever. If you make it a, a debate or a talk about alcohol, you've missed the whole point of the Passover. You've missed the whole point of it. We can have those conversations, and we can talk about what that means, and we can talk about where, where that goes and what it leads to and all of that, but that's not the point of the Passover meal. Another thing that I think is really cool is that scholars believe that at the time of Jesus... They believe that Jesus would have been practicing these four cups, like the ceremony of these four cups. It would have kind of marked the Passover feast. So when we see Jesus celebrate the Passover with his disciples in the Gospels, you can layer the Gospels together, or at least scholars can. I don't think I can. But like you can layer the Gospels together and you can see the marks of the feast and the places, um, the traditions that are still held today, including all four cups. They, they have the Passover um, We'll actually get back to that in just, in just a second. But let's do this. Let's look at these cups in detail. Each one gives a slightly different view, a different promise that God gives. We get this slightly different view of the question, really the answer to, what are we going to do with this blood? Because the wine in the cups, that's an obvious representation of the blood on the doorpost. So what are we going to do with this? So let's start with cup one. Cup one was the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification. Now, sanctification is one of those churchy words that we throw around. I had a Bible college professor actually used to be minister here at Northside, Woody Wilkinson. You'd ask him, how you doing today, Woody? And he would say, saved, sanctified, and full of the Holy Ghost. And we we're like, okay, <laughs> like a simple fine would have been great. Um, but every time, I mean, he's known for that. Saved, sanctified, full of the Holy Ghost. Sanctified just simply means this. It just means to set something aside to be holy. The cup of sanctification was uh, sanctifying. Sanctification is what my son does with his crescent roll at dinner. You following? Okay, let me explain. He loves them, okay? Maybe a little too much. Um, they're, they're from God and they're blessed, but like he takes it and he will set it on his napkin to the side because he wants to save it for last, right? He wants to set it aside. So he wants to sanctify. When I say that to him, he's like, no, I just want to eat it last, Dad. But I'm going to sanctify that. I'm going to set it aside. I'm going to eat all the other stuff with all the, you know, all the juices and the gravy. And that's right. I don't want that ruining the holiness of my crescent roll, right? That's what it means. To, that's kind of what it means to be set aside. It's way more important in here. Um, but the cup is the official start of the Passover feast when the first cup is taken. 
They would drink it reclining, which I'm not going to do this morning. I don't know how. Um, we make a mess. But uh, they would drink it reclining. And the reason they would recline is because free people, that's how free people drink their wine. They recline. And they, they don't stand up like they're serving someone else. So just as free people would, this was God's promise, reminding them of God's promise that he would bring them out. Now, I want you to think back to our early days of Bible, Bible reading engagement. And do you remember how the Israelites got, became slaves in Egypt? They weren't taken and captured from their land and drugged to Egypt. They weren't, uh, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't like kidnapped. Nobody came and took over where they were. No, they were, they were invited to Egypt. They were invited. And, and in about, Bible, thinks, the Bible, Bible scholars think that about 70 people traveled with um, you know, Joseph's family when they came as a place of refuge during the famine. And so they came. And then fast forward a few years later, and we've, got, we've gone from about 70 to 3 million people. And Pharaoh, who's not the same Pharaoh, Pharaoh regime has now changed. And he says, hey, there's a lot of people here. If they decided that they wanted to take over Egypt, they probably could. So let's make them our slaves. Let's make them work for us. So over the course of 400 years, a place that had become a refuge, a place that had become uh, a a safe space, um, a place to get away from the famine, to get away from the atrocities, had had become a place of pain and suffering for God's people. But God had a plan to bring them out. This is his promise. The morning after the plague, can you imagine the Israelites walking out of their blood-stained doorpost? And there's, there's death all around them. Every other family that's an Egyptian is, is having a funeral that morning. But they're free. They're free. For the first time in their lifetime, they are a free people. They're going to get to leave. And God is keeping his promises. And so what can we learn for the first cup for us? I mean, we, we know what it means for the Israelites, but what does it mean for us? It means that whatever sin-filled bondage, however long you've been there, God wants to bring you out of it. God wants to deliver you and bring you out. Sometimes we put our, sometimes it's not sin that, you know, that, that we put ourselves into, but sometimes it's actually, um, it's actually we, we just walk into it. So sometimes we put ourselves in bondage. One author called it, um, he called our sin lives the voluntary slavery. Where not, not like the Israelites, where they just kind of found themselves and were like, oh no, now, you know, like uh, this took a turn for the worse. But we actually walk towards our sin. We actually walk towards the things that we think will change our lives. The things that think, we think will, will make everything better. The things that, think, that we think will pleasure us. And we realize that now we're in a spiral I love that imagery because it's often what we do. You know, James, the brother of Jesus would say, if we know the good that we should do and we don't do it, we're guilty of sin. Sometimes we know the effects that sin has on us because we've been down that path before. You know, the cycle of sin that we continually see ourselves spiraling, where like you, you're trying to follow God and living here for him the best way that you can. You're trying to do the right things. And then you get complacent. You look for a thrill or you look for, you know, some adventure in life or whatever it is. You look for, you know, something to, to fill that need that you have in you and you fall into sin. You spiral out of control and then you feel bad and guilty and then you ask for forgiveness and God forgives you. And then you're right back to living for God. I guess that cycle, this is a cycle that we would see the Israelites fall into when they head to the wilderness. God is pun- actually punishes them for this. 
where, where they would be all about, you know, following God's commands. And they'd look around and go, I kind of want to be like the other nations. I kind of want to do what they do. And they would start this. My son's uh, children's Bible calls it cycles of apostasy. Where you just like, it's like it's all for God, but then you're complacent and then you walk away and then you come back and then God's deliverance and it's this cycle. But there's also, there's also other types of sin. You see, God wants to bring us out of all types of sin. Sin that, uh, sin that we walked ourselves into and just we uninvited, we just said, let's go. Or even sin that we didn't put ourselves in. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 18 says this, but thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have, be, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. But there's also the sin that we don't put ourselves in. Choices by other people. This is the case of the Israelites. They had not sinned against God yet. God, was, God had chosen them as, their chosen, as his chosen people. They, had, um, they, they were taken advantage of. They were abused and hurt by the sins of Pharaoh. You see, his ideals that he was God and that Egypt was uh, his heaven, that, his sin is now affecting others. It's not just him. And we've seen this happen. My heart breaks for victims of, of child abuse, the most vulnerable amongst us, sexual abuse, atrocities that lead to mental health issues, behavior issues, even suicide for babies born addicted to drugs, children who are neglected, teens who are bullied, spouses who are abused, the choices of others, maybe the choices of others, have spiraled you into a life of sin, and you look up and go, I don't even know how I got here. I didn't walk towards this. Someone put me here. Just as the Israelites would walk out of Egypt free, no matter how you ended up in a life of sin, he wants to bring us out. He wants to move us from slave to free, from the plate to the napkin, set aside, sanctified. He wants to use the church to do that. He wants to use the community that's around you to do that. He wants to use Celebrate Recovery to do that. He wants to use life groups to do that. He wants to use the people sitting next to you, the people who will pray for you and love you. That is what the church is all about, to bring you out, to get you away from those destructive behaviors, to encourage you in that way. But it's not just about moving you out of your Egypt. God has more promises for the Israelites. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. The cup of deliverance. Now there's a difference in God bringing out the Israelites and delivering the Israelites. It sounds a little bit like the same thing. But here we remember God's promise to bring them out. Maybe you've heard the saying before, like you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Okay? I'm like a walking mural of that, right? Like, like the way I said mural. Um, we don't use that word in the country. But, but it's the same, the same type of thing. Like you can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but there was still quite a bit of Egypt left in. And there was still some trauma there. There's still some, some ideas of slavery. There are still some thoughts that they belong to someone else other than the one true God. So you can take, you know, God doesn't just want to bring them out of Egypt, but he also wants to bring the Egypt out of them. To bring them out meant to move, like ge- geographically. But to deliver means to actually save and rescue. Israel needs both. They need a way to get away from the destruction that they had been enslaved to. But they also need to be saved from all of the toxic things that had been done to them. I grew up going to church camp every year. And church camp 
when I think back on those, on those days, I can see kind of a pattern developed every single year. You've got, you've got Monday and Tuesday, like Sunday nights, just kind of everybody's just so like excited to not be at home and everybody's just pumped or whatever. And it's, you know, big night, whatever. But like Monday and Tuesday are very interesting days at church camp. A lot of guys are looking for girlfriends. Um, that's just happening. Um, a lot of girls are not looking for boyfriends. Um, and, but, but there is this kind of sense of like, we're here for something else. Okay. We've moved away from our homes for a week. We're moved into the dorms. We're kind of settling in. Everybody's just kind of feeling out like, okay, what's this going to be like for a week? And then somewhere around Tuesday night into Wednesday, you start to get this sense as a student, I started to get this sense of like, it's better for me to be away from a lot of the stuff I left at home. They always do that speech at the beginning of camp. It was like, this is the stuff you weren't supposed to bring with you. If you brought this stuff, please just tell us. You're not going to be in trouble. That's a lie. Um, but like, because <laughs> you knew you weren't supposed to bring that stuff. Um, but like they you know, list off all the things. Like if you've got like lighters and bombs and those sort of things. Like, please just don't. Like, just let us have those now because <laughs> we don't want to find them later. Um, but, but you start to get this sense that all of the stuff that you left behind, it's a good thing. It's good. And maybe there's some, you know, minor withdrawals of like, you know, I'm not able to, you know, eat the stuff that I was eating before. I'm not able to like all of those things, but, but you start to get a sense, this might be a good thing. And your heart starts to kind of shape around you. Like, I think I could do without this. In our camp, you go out there and like cell phones, it's like, like, what is that? Like, there's no cell signal or whatever. So you might as well not even frustrate yourself with that. But you start to get a sense of like, this has actually been kind of good. This has been kind of good to have distance away from these things that lead me into these, um, you know, impulsive, even sinful desires. And then Thursday comes along. Thursday, if you're not familiar with church camp, us in the business, um, we call it cry night. (laughs) Um, And that's just because everybody cries. The guys cry, the girls cry, like everybody cries. They just realize we're all going home tomorrow. And, uh, and so it's like this, this kind of moment of like emotion, but like the spirit's moving and they're convicted of their sin and that sort of stuff. And that's the point where you start to realize that just moving away from your sin or the things that, that trip you up into the sin, like just getting away for a week is not really going to be enough to save you from your sin. Somewhere around there, you, you start to see that shift. But, but sometimes it even takes like a week once you get home. Like you leave on Friday and then it's, you know, like back into summertime. And about a week, you know, you start to realize like, oh, I'm kind of right back into the patterns I've been in all along. How did that happen? I thought I was going to get away from these things. I thought I put these in. And what you start to realize is that just throwing away, you know, CD with a CD with bad words on it or, or just breaking up with a, a guy or a girl or starting to, you know, just distancing yourself is not going to be enough. I didn't just need distance from my sin and struggles. I needed rescued from them. And the Israelites didn't need to just get away from Egypt geographically. They definitely did. They needed delivered. It's not just a relocation mission. It's... It's a rescue mission. God doesn't just ask us to to run our whole lives. Here, I moved you. Now get to running and never stop. No, God, God wants to deliver you from your sin. He wants to deliver you from your sin. Aren't you sick of the same things tripping you up over and over again? It's like, oh, I thought I got rid of, I thought I got far enough away from that. That's a, that's a classic, you know, classic Christian question is like, how far is too far? Can I, how, how close can I get to this sin without it snagging me? It's like, if you're walking next to a a barbed wire fence 
and your idea is like, how far do I need to stay away from this so it doesn't grab a hold of my clothes? The other side of the field is a pretty good place to be, right? Get away from it. But even then, we don't have legs strong enough to run from our sin. I've been in countless accountability groups with, with young men, college guys, struggling with a lot of the same things. Pornography, addiction to their phones, um, even drugs. And the same kind of thing happens every time. And it's a little bit sad because you can kind of see it coming and you can kind of warn, but, but, but like we, we'll do all the things. I mean, you go to the computers, you softwares, you've got the filters and the, you know, take away the phone, all that sort of stuff. You've got all of this sort of stuff, the blockers, the filters, the reports, and all of that helps for a time. It all helps to put distance between the sin and sinner. That's, that's bring you out. That's get you away. That's geographical distance. But there's one thing that I've found with all of these groups and really all sin altogether is that you can't fix a software problem with a hardware solution. And some computer guys are like, actually, but no, stick with me. I'm not talking about computers. <laughs> you can't fix a software problem with a hardware solution. You can for a time. It can give you distance. It can give you hoops to jump through so you don't click on that. Um, it, can give you, it can give you accountability set up so when something happens, you've got a, a, a place to go or you've got the counseling, you've got the, the blocks and all that sort of thing. Can, it can help for a time. But all of, these, all of these things can be uninstalled. All of these things can be, you know, you know hacked around or whatever, that sort of thing. In your walk with Christ, there's no amount of barriers, people, programs, steps, meetings. There's no amount of those things that can save you from your sin. Psalm chapter 73 verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we run from our sin? Yes. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we don't have the legs to outrun sin our whole lives. Some of you have tried it. I've tried it. You get real tired, real fast. We don't just need distance from our sin. We need rescued. But not just to look good on the outside, not just actually rescue you from it all, to actually do something about it. So how is God going to deal with, okay, we've got distance, we've got deliverance. Now, how is God actually going to deal with the sin in the camp of Israel? Because it wasn't just a bunch of holy, sanctified people that walked away from, from Egypt. We'll see that in the coming chapters. Remember all the blood we talked about earlier, the third cup. The third cup is the cup of redemption. This one comes a little easier to us growing up church kids because we hear the word redemption a lot. And we know about Jesus and that he came to redeem us. But this is where it really all starts. Redemption is another one of those churchy words, but don't let that scare you away. It just means to buy something back. When you've sold something, you can buy it back. Like if you ever had a car that you sold that you really wish you hadn't, you could go to that owner and say, I'd like to redeem my car. And they'd be like, what? Um, you're like, I learned that in church. I want to buy it back. That's all it means. I just want to buy, I just want to buy my car back. Um, Lori Medlin was telling me, uh, we, were, we were texting about our messages today, and she was saying, she came across a really interesting fact that happens um, for some Jewish people as they celebrate the Passover. And when they celebrate the Passover, one of the things you've got to do in preparation for the Passover is get everything really clean. You've got to get, all, get everything, everything super clean, and you've got to get all of the leaven out of your house. You know, like leaven, like 
bread stuff. I don't know. I don't know much about bread. But uh, you got to get all the leaven. And so they would go as fine as like they would take feathers and like dust all of the things just to make sure there's no leaven. And some, some would go to the extreme of actually getting rid of their pets because pets are messy. And so you don't want messy pets around for the Passover. And so they would get rid of their pets. They'd literally sell their pets to their non-Jewish neighbors, <laughs> celebrate the Passover for the week that it is, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They'd celebrate, they'd do their fast, they'd do all of that, they'd do the meal. And then the week after, they would redeem their dog back to the family. They would redeem their pets. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know, some of you are like, can we do that to kids? Like, can kids go away for a week? Like, That's called school. Um, Redemption is, is one of maybe the strongest answers to the question, why all of the blood in the Bible? It's the one that, that kind of that hits at the definition the most. Why is this? Israelites were not only brought out and delivered by the blood on the doorpost, but they were redeemed by it. This blood brought, bought back their freedom. In those days, if you fell on hard times, you could literally sell yourself into slavery. Or worse... If your brothers didn't like you because you had a nice, shiny, colorful coat, they could sell you into slavery. My brother had much less excuse for that, but he, he threatened, right? But you could be sold into slavery. And every you know, His brothers could care less. Joseph's brothers could care less if they were going to buy him back. They didn't care. But with every, um, every transaction of someone being sold into slavery, there's a redemption price that's set. Now, again, Joseph's brothers could care less. They just wanted him gone. But it, with every, every one of those transactions, you notice that, that, that you can be, just as you can be sold into slavery or sell yourself into slavery, you can get bought out of or buy yourself out of slavery. This is very different than our concept of, of, of Western slavery. This is very different. But there's a redemption price to be paid. And you notice, the promise is not just to redeem you. It's not just, I'm going to redeem you. But how he's going to redeem is important. With an outstretched hand. So I looked up that Hebrew word for outstretched. What does that mean? What does it mean to be, to, that God is going to heal you with an outstretched hand? I'll bring the Hebrew word up here on the screen. With an outstretched hand. To stretch out. <laughs> That's a great definition for outstretched, right? Thanks, Bible dictionary. But look at, the, look at the next ones. To spread out. And you'll start to get a vision. Us New Testament Christians will start to get a, a vision here. To spread out, to stretch out, to, to, to lengthen or to bend down. All of the striving that Israel and the nation, they, they would see the nations around them and they would go, they're all striving for something. Everyone's trying to appease Pharaoh or they're trying to, to, to appease their gods or appease the, the people that are over them. God is promising to his people that he's going to not expect them to reach up to him. They're not expected to climb the mountain. They're not expected to be able to do all of this stuff that we read in the law. But he's going to come down to them. And with an outstretched hand, he's going to bend down. He's going to reach to them. And we see this poetic description that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. And we see that Jesus, Jesus lowered himself not just to be a servant, not just to be a slave, but, but lowered himself in obedience to death to serve us. That's what an outstretched hand looks like. He would redeem us with his outstretched hands. I mentioned before that, that we have accounts recorded in the gospel of Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. 
And again, the careful reading, you can layer those up and realize that, that Jesus would have taken the four cups. And as a Jewish man, as a Jewish boy growing up, as a, as a rabbi in training, as memorizing the Torah, he would have, they would have participated in this with his family. He would have participated in it with his disciples, probably multiple times. I find it really interesting that even though the authors are kind of sporadic and you really do have to do some like grabbing and lining up and all that sort of stuff to go like, like here's where they did the first cup or here's where they did, you know, celebrated at this time, that sort of thing. I find it interesting that the synoptics, so that's what we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, because um, they they're all kind of lined up pretty good, they all hone in on the third cup. We have, we have very detailed information about Jesus and his disciples taking the third cup. It's the third cup in vivid detail. Let's, let's just look at, at Matthew's retelling of this part of the feast. Now remember, the third cup is the cup of redemption. Imagine all of these devout Jewish men sitting around the table, celebrating the Passover. The meal has come. This is after the telling of the Exodus story, after the bitter herbs, after the first two cups of wine. It was right at the conclusion of the meal, Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread. This was part of the meal. I was, I was reading through the outline of how you celebrate the Passover. This is what's supposed to come next. It's actually the last piece of bread that they would eat during the Passover meal. It's supposed to linger in their mouths for quite some time to remember, to remember the promises of God. He took the bread, blessed it and broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine the shock and the awe in the disciples' face? I mean, Jesus had done some pretty strange things when it came to tradition. But this is the Passover. This is like the start of their year. This is like the Super Bowl of being Jewish, right? This is the big deal. How are you possibly going? Jesus, can, you just, can we just do this feast? And so he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he, he does what I call magnifies the meaning of those things. We've seen Jesus do this before. He's done it with the law, hasn't he? He said, he said you've heard it said, and all the rabbis are like, yeah, go get him, Jesus. You've heard it said, you've heard it said. Yeah, let's read him from the law. Just read from the law, just beat him down with the people. But Jesus says, but I tell you this. He's magnifying the meaning of the law. He's saying, yeah, we're not getting rid of the law. We're actually gonna add to it. We're gonna add more meaning to it. And so Jesus magnifies the meaning of redemption. I imagine the disciples were either awestruck or just really confused. Like, like really kind of worried about him, right? Did he just say that this bread was his body, that the wine was his blood? I mean, we've heard him say that before, but the Passover? Here's where the blood trail leads. We start in Exodus and we go all the way through to now we have Jesus reclining at the table with his disciples. This is where it leads. That's important to remember that this is the Passover. Uh, the Passover meal starts at sundown. The next day, the next calendar day in the Jewish calendar wouldn't start until the next sundown. So we're going we're gonna to count the day from sundown on the Passover till sundown. Okay? What's going to happen after this meal? Well, it, it says that they, you know, they sung a hymn together. So they're going to do that. 
It's interesting to note that some of those hymns that they would sing, one of them would be, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. They're singing this in the late hours of the night, thinking about the day it is. Think of Jesus's heart. Because from here, they're going to go to the garden. Jesus is going to pray. The disciples are going to sleep. From there, Jesus will be arrested. He'll be tried overnight. He'll be beaten, flogged, hung on a cross. Middle of the day, the sky goes dark. It's still the Passover. And you see the Roman soldier looks up. Surely this was the Son of God. I mean, he's seen all this play out. It's all still the same day. It all happens on the Passover. Beth Moore said in her talk that I was watching, she said, this has got to be the most significant meal in all of history. The lamb on the table with the lamb at the table. One of, one of them had already been slaughtered. Millions of them had already been slaughtered. As we learn in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The other lamb was about to be slaughtered once and for all. A couple other things to note. After Jesus takes of the third cup, he offers the third cup to everyone at the table. Okay? The disciples with their jaws on the floor, like, what is he doing? Matthew's gospel says this in, in verse 27. Um, I tell you the truth. I will not drink of it. So he says this actually of the fourth cup. Sorry, he's with the fourth cup. That's where we're moving in the, in the feast. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. With you in my Father's kingdom. Not only does he not complete the Passover meal, he magnifies the meaning of it. It's like this big thing, like, okay, Jesus, I get it. You made a point out of that. You've taken something, whatever. But he doesn't finish the meal. Not only does he not finish it, but he says, I'm not even going to drink of this cup until we're all together again. Disciples are like, well, that should just be like the next Passover, right? We just got like another year. Okay, we're just going to skip this one. Maybe Jesus is feeling a little tipsy. We should set this one out, right? No, no. Cup number four, do you remember what it was called? The cup of consummation. For the Israelites, it was becoming the nation of God, becoming the people of Israel. I will take you as my people. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. For modern Jews, it's, it's the consummation of the feast. It's over. It's time to take a nap. It's time to sleep. It's, time, the, the, it's, it's over. But for, for our Messianic Jewish friends and for us, there's more in this fourth cup that Jesus does not drink of and says won't until we're with him. I find it equally interesting that in John's gospel, see John's gospel is written much later than Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John gives us a little more context to what's, what's going on a lot of times. So like you'll see something happen and then John's going to give us like the, the real personal in-depth conversations that happen in between and in and out. So he's kind of filling in some of the gaps of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And, and after Jesus, after it says they, they took, you know, they stood up, they sang a hymn and they went out to pray at the garden. There's actually a conversation that happens. The, the, it doesn't just stop there. They're not just walking out of the room on the meal. It, it continues on. And, and John records that in John chapter 14. This happens right after. It says they sung a hymn. And then this conversation starts. You can imagine Jesus is looking around the room going, all right, I don't think you guys got that. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think you realize what just happened here. You look a little confused. So here's what he says to the disciples. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, don't miss this. I will come again and take you to myself. So that where I am, you may also be. Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup because it's not time for the fourth cup yet. The fourth cup is, pardon the pun, forthcoming. With a glimpse of the, we see the fourth cup, we see a promise of the future. We get a a glimpse in Revelation chapter 5 when every tribe, tongue, and nation is sitting around the throne singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Not worthy are the millions of lambs that were slain, but worthy is this lamb that was slain because he is worthy. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. But what are we supposed to do while we wait for the fourth cup? In my harmony of the gospels, I have a book that lines up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can kind of read in columns. John doesn't have the feast that that the disciples celebrate together. But we have the conversation afterwards. John just kind of sits that story out. It's been told three times already. You don't need it again. But somebody who does tell it again is Paul. And I don't know if Peter told this story to Paul. I don't know if James told this story to Paul. I don't know if the Holy Spirit just revealed this to Paul in a way that he would know the details of that night. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see him detail what happens in that night to take the bread, to take the cup. And then he ends in verse 26 by saying this, for as often as you eat and drink of this cup, eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we wait for the fourth cup while taking the third cup. We do it weekly. While taking the fourth cup continually, as often as you meet. And if you're here with us this morning, we're going to do it together. If you're with us online, you're welcome to join us. Gather your supplies. Everyone, if you've got your self-serve communion cups, go ahead and get them out and rip the tops off. We'll get it all out of the way at the same time. If you didn't get one, there's some tables in the back. You can see the lamps to light the way. You can grab one. We're going to take communion together. God keeps his promises. He brought out Israel. He delivered Israel. He redeemed Israel through the blood. The, the, The stained doorpost represents a faithfulness of God, a stream of blood that we can trace all through his word, all the way to the gathering here today. And because in the person of Christ, God has taken all of his promises, the distance from our sin, the deliverance from our sin, the redemption from our sin. He's taken all of those promises and wrapped them into one body that would be broken. A worthy body. So church, let's take together the bread that represents the body that stretched down for us. And also God has taken his promises, all of his love and his grace, a distance from sin, a deliverance from sin, a redemption from sin, and he's poured it into one cup, namely the body and the blood of Jesus. And he's offered us distance, deliverance, redemption. Church, let's take the cup together. So maybe you're here today and you feel like I would feel 
if I sat down at a traditional Jewish feast? Really confused. <laughs> like really, what is happening here? Maybe you feel like the disciples. Like I, we were doing this traditional thing. We go to church on Sundays. Why you got to do that? Why you got to make it weird, Jesus? Maybe Jesus is speaking to you this morning. Maybe you can see that, that distance from your sin is not enough, that, that deliverance from your sin is not enough, but true redemption through the blood of the Lamb, true redemption through not, not a cloudy glass like this, but through the waters of baptism. Maybe for you there's a decision that you need to make and that, and that you will join with the church for as many years as it takes as we take the third cup together waiting for the fourth cup. I would love to talk with you and pray with you about your next steps of faith. If you, when we worship together, as we, as we stand here in just a little bit, I'll be right outside these double doors at our decision point time. If you're online with us, you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision, or you can text decision to the number that you see there on your screen. One of our ministers will be reaching out. This, this is a, a time to, to look at the promises of God and say, what does it mean for me? Does God really want to deliver me? Does God really want to redeem me? I also want to remind you that if you're, if you're looking to give this morning to the, to the ministry of Northside, as well as our global outreach efforts, uh, you can do that. You can find offering boxes on your way out at every exit, but you can also do that online or our text to give option. But we're going to worship together. We're going to worship as a community of the third cup, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, awaiting consummation. Would you all stand as we sing together this morning? Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.